Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Year with Jesus, where we are learning to think, live, and love like Jesus. I'm Philip. And I'm Bill. Today, we are in Matthew chapter 10 and 11. All right, Bill, these chapters are full, aren't they? Yeah, so much information here, for sure. When we start looking at chapter 10, we see that Jesus is talking to the apostles. Mm -hmm. He's chosen his 12 special ambassadors to take this message to the cities of Israel. Yeah. And and whether this is supposed to be 12 similar to the 12 tribes of Israel or whatnot, we don't exactly know. But like you're saying... He will call these 12, and, and well, I guess even before we get into the message and what he's going to want for them, Philip, does anything stand out to you about the 12 men that he decided to choose out? I just love how different they all are. Yeah. Right? Because the body of disciples that are following Jesus today, we see all this different uh, background, these different preferences, these different passions, mm-hmm. and Jesus is the one that is able to pull them together into a community and into a really productive team. Amen. I just, I just imagine what it would have been like to see the 12 and see Matthew and, and Simon the Zealot in the same group of people. But again, that, that is what the gospel does. That is the kinds of people that the gospel brings together. It's tremendous. And so he's going to take them and he's going to match them up. And you almost wonder if he matched them up two by two yeah. with the people that were going to like really rub each other's rough places off. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Crazy friction. I could see that. I could see that for sure. But I love like even as he continues, as he calls them, what he tells them to do is he says, go and preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verses eight and nine, he essentially tells them to be like him. And that's that's really what the apostles were supposed to be. We're going to be people who were going to work like Jesus by being like Jesus. Yes, they're going to go and they're going to take this message and they're going to take the power he's given them to be a blessing to others as he had been a blessing, but they're going to do it not for their own glory. It's back to the Lord and back to the Father even Mm -hmm. in what they're doing here. And he tells them in verse 16, this really interesting phrase, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. He wants them to be blameless, but he wants them to be alert. What kind of dangers do you think they need to be alert to or do we need to be alert to? Yeah, I I think even the verses right before for the dangers of, of the motivation as to why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, even what people don't be gullible, you know, don't be crafty and all of that. I think the shrewdness would have implied that, like, be smart, be wise about what you're doing. But at the same time, sometimes what happens whenever people are like that is that they can maybe not be so innocent. And so Jesus is calling for a higher standard on both regards. That's right. When we see people mistreating us Mm -hmm. and not accepting the truth, we maybe want to sink to their level or we want to respond in kind. But of course, Jesus never did that. He maintained his integrity and he set that great example. And he wants them to be out there. There, knowing they're going to be mistreated, but continuing to set forth you know, the kind of example of living out this teaching. Absolutely. I mean, this is this right here. I mean, it, it was a dangerous mission he was going to send them out on to go to the world, condemn the world of their sin, try to teach them of a new of a new kingdom and tell them that the Messiah of this kingdom was going to eventually be the man who was crucified. That was going to be a serious mission, you know, very d- dangerous mission. But again, it goes back to the, sh- the you know, the, the shrewdness that they needed to have and the innocence that God wanted to have for them. I I really agree. And as you think about the danger there, there's a danger to their own confidence Mm -hmm. because of that rejection that's going to come. In verse uh, 22, he says, you'll be hated by all because of my name. And I think we know trying to walk in Jesus' footsteps today, we're still going to deal with that rejection. Absolutely. And and, in verse 23, he says, you're going to be rejected, but guess what? You can't give up. You you just have to persevere. You got to keep going. Just when they persecute you in one city, 
flee. It's almost like you almost you can I think about this with Paul, especially in the in, in the book of Acts, as he's preaching the gospel and they're like kicking him out of like Thessalonica and he's running to the next city. And then he just gets up and starts preaching there as well. That's that's what discipleship is. And sometimes, you know, we're going to go and we're going to have conversations to people and talk to people about the kingdom and talk to people about the meaning of discipleship. And sometimes they're going to reject us. And and it can be so easy. You know this. I know this to get discouraged and yep. to want to kind of hang our heads down. And he's like, no, pick your head up and keep moving. You got to keep going. It's great. And, and he even says, as he starts talking about being a disciple and imitating him, this idea that what you've heard whispered, you need to proclaim it on the housetops. Mm-hmm. And wow, does our society need that today? We need Christians who are that salt, who are that light that Jesus introduced in the Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount that are proclaiming this upon the housetops, that are talking to the people around us and the ones we interact with, pointing them to Jesus and not just what he teaches, but how he lived that out so that we would walk in his footsteps. Amen. No, I love that there. And again, if, if the disciple is supposed to be like his master, we're not above the master, so we can't presume certain things that he has not called us to do. But at the same time, he says, don't be afraid of them. I'd have to be afraid of the master. If I were asleep, yes. I'd be afraid of my master, not of whatever anybody else is going to think about me. You know, he, he talks about there's big, he's, there's bigger powers at play here. Don't be afraid of the people who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. And so again, and, and you think about all of this, you know, because there's a reward with all of this, right? There's a, a reward for the, the 12. It, it's hard work. It was going to be difficult. But at the end of all of this, what was supposed to happen? Well, it seems like at the end of this, they were supposed to remember two big things. They were first supposed to remember how valuable they were in the eyes of God, Mm. that they were more valuable than these sparrows, that God knew them, knew everything they were dealing with, even knew the number of hairs on their head. So they were supposed to remember that they were deeply loved, and then they were supposed to remember that they cannot deny the Lord, that everything about their life needed to confess their allegiance to Christ. Amen. Amen. And maybe that goes back to in verses, you know, uh, 37 and 38, whenever he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That if my allegiance to Jesus is the most important thing in the world, then this is the most important thing in the world. I always think in verses 37 and 38, he gives almost everything that people really truly love. You know, he talks about whoever loves father or mother more than yes. me, whoever loves son or daughter more than me, whoever does not take up his cross and even your own life. And so it's almost like the people that gave you birth, the people that you have brought into this world, or even yourself. If you love any of that more than Jesus, he says, you're not worthy of me. Yes. So it means that he's got to be the first in our life, Mm -hmm. the first in our heart. And when he's in that position, confessing him is the most natural thing to do. Amen. Trusting in him is the most natural thing to do. So I guess as we get into chapter 11, we see that John is going to start struggling with that a little bit. He's got his own moment of doubt, which we've all experienced. We can all relate to, but he's he knows what to do with that doubt. He's turning to Jesus Amen. to say, okay, what am I missing? Yeah. And John's not like, John's not over here just like, oh, things are terrible. I guess Jesus, you can't be the Messiah. Like you're saying, he has these doubts. He goes to Jesus. And I love this because Jesus, he, he could have said, well, John, how dare you? John, you knew better. John, we're related. And what does he do? What does Jesus, how does Jesus, you know, in verse four, he says, go and report, report to John what you hear and see. And what was, what essentially was he set, telling John in verses five and six? Well, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 35, and he's saying that everything you can see indicates that I am mm-hmm. the one that was promised. And that when we start to doubt or we start to fear or we start to get discouraged, come back to the truth. Amen. Come back to those things that God has told us to look for and they're right in front of us. 
I, I think that's so good. And I love like, so, you know, so he says that, and, and again, John is not this unstable person. John would have known the truth. He would have known who Jesus was. But then Jesus tells him, look, you know what? John was great in verse 11. You know, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And then the very next phrase would have almost been shocking, I believe, because then he says, the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That John's mission was important, but our mission in this kingdom today, Jesus says, is just as important, that we all get to be like John the Baptist as we go out and bring this message out to the world. That's fantastic. And it, it makes us think about this privilege and the responsibility that goes with it. Because I think John knew that to be the forerunner was a mm-hmm. privilege and a responsibility. And for us to be disciples of our Lord today, again, it's a privilege and it's a responsibility. So as we think about the way this chapter continues, Jesus has some pretty strong things to say. Yeah. When we, when we look on to the cities that he's visited, the cities where he's preached, and the cities where he's performed a lot of miracles. How did those cities respond? Yeah, I mean, with unbelief, generally. And and, and I love it, because actually in a few verses right before that, he says, this is this is the problem with you people, is he says, you're like kids in a marketplace. You know, it's like kids at a store who they're complaining about everything. They're not happy with anything. Right. Uh, who call out to the other children. And the point, Jesus' point is like, look, it didn't matter what you were going to get. If your heart was was predisposed to not wanting to believe, this was going to be your condition. He says, we played the flute and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. John, he didn't eat or drink. And they said he has a demon. The son of man eats and drink. And they say a gluttonous man. And so whenever we see that these cities are unwilling to repent, it's not for a lack of, of trying on God's end. God uses different methods to try to get people to believe. They just decided they were not they were not going to believe. And Jesus says, destruction is coming. Yes, they wanted to be dissatisfied and they wanted to criticize. They were looking at John and Jesus with a critical spirit. And in these cities, that critical spirit was there to such an extent that Jesus actually speaks about some of the cities that God destroyed mm-hmm. in the Old Testament and says that in judgment, things will be better for those cities than for the ones around Galilee, where Jesus has preached, where he's performed many signs and wonders, and yet they have rejected him. And Philip, think about just how many people today will say things like, if God would just show me a sign, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just... And people saw that, and they still did not change. And so as he wraps up uh, this chapter, as he, reads, he wraps up kind of this discourse, he, he starts to tell people, you know, people, they're, they're unwilling to repent. And I believe in him trying to encourage them. It's like, look, you're unwilling to repent is actually a real burden for you. You may not see it that way. You think repentance would be a burden. It's hard, but it's not burdensome. How does Jesus finish this section in such a way to encourage, I believe, even these unrepenting cities and us today, if we know people who are unwilling to repent, how does he encourage us to come forward to him? Yeah, he comes and explains that following him is actually the lighter path. Mm -hmm. Following him is actually the more gentle path and that what he's asked for people is good for them. Mm -hmm. This, this need to have courage and confess him, this need to take up discipleship and to tell others about the kingdom. All of that is the place where our souls find rest. Mm -hmm. When we are seeking for rest, In this world, we're not going to have it. When we're seeking for rest in being critical and cynical and and treating everything ironic, no, that's not where the rest comes from. The rest comes from seeing a genuine Savior who has fulfilled these prophecies, who can be trusted and choosing to follow Him. He wants to give us 
rest. I love that. I love that so much. So when we think about this personally, it seems like there are lots of applications Mm -hmm. of being this kind of disciple. What about when we start to think about this collectively and how this influences those around us? Yeah, I think, think first of all, we need to see that Jesus, like, you, you know, we talked about this. Jesus, he doesn't go out by himself. He chooses the 12. Even with the 12, he doesn't send them out. We mentioned earlier, you know, as they, he sent them out two by two. I think collectively, part of the problem can sometimes be is we're trying to take this burden, first of all, without God, and second of all, without our brothers and sisters. And and part of what the Lord has done in his wisdom is he's given us brothers and sisters. He's given us a church family to complement his grace and his mercy and himself to help us with our burden and, and to lean into that, to lean into that family that we have. That's tremendous. To to take advantage of the family and the partnerships that he has created. I think also when we look at these chapters, we see the way that Jesus himself shines as mm-hmm. our example. He's the one we can count on. He's the one that has been bold in his preaching and his teaching. And he's the one that wants to give us rest. And and I just think as we think about who Jesus is, maybe a big takeaway from Jesus, as Jesus describes himself in verse 29 after in chapters 10 and 11, talking about the work, talking about how demanding the work was going to be, talking about the persecution of the work, talking about people who would not repent. He finishes all of this by saying, I am gentle and humble in heart. It's work, but the master is gentle. And the king of the universe even says he's humble in heart and he really has our best interest in mind. That's tremendous. Well, thank you for joining us this week on A Year with Jesus. And we look forward to covering chapter 12 and 13 next week. If you'd like to follow along with our reading plan, please visit us at embryhills.com slash podcast.